good, grab your Bibles. Go to James 1. James chapter 1. As you're turning there, a couple quick things. Um, that's a QR code up on the screen there if you're a guest with us or even a regular and you want to follow along in your Bible app. If you scan that here in the next moment or two before it disappears, it'll bring you right to the passage. I want to encourage you to be looking at your copy of Scripture, whether that be in a, in a bound version or an online version, whatever it might be. We want to encourage you to be in the Word with me so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. Not most of it. You'll know the stuff I'm making up. That won't be difficult. Real quick, real quick for you. Last week we looked at the beginning of James chapter 1 where, where James is unpacking, and, and just for this service in particular, <clears throat> last week I just kept stumbling over my words over and over again. And the reality is I messed up, and so I want to confess that to you, and, and, and many of you caught it. Um, James is not Jesus' stepbrother. James is Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother and stepbrother. Very different things. Half-brother. Some of you who weren't here last week are like, wait a minute, Jesus had a brother? Go back and re-listen last week. You'll understand. Um, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, um, after the, the falling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he is leading his people through a very difficult season where there are, uh, there's great famine, there's great poverty, uh, then, then <clears throat> excuse me, huge persecution, and, and his people begin to scatter. And they're scattering around the known world at the time, carrying with them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Pastor James here is writing to those people and he's saying, listen, as you go and you're considering all of these different attacks coming at you, these trials, these difficulties, these things that are pr producing hardship in your life, putting you under pressure, some type of suffering even in your life, what I want to encourage you to do is to take those things, those trials, and as they come at you, instead of just being piling them into the, and just another thing to be miserable about, another thing to be miserable about, I want you to take those, and even though you don't rejoice in the fact you just lost your job, even though you don't rejoice in the fact your car just broke down, even though you don't rejoice in the fact that, that your bank account's kind of empty, you take those trials and you slide them into the column of, this is going to be for my good, ultimately. That's what real faith does. Real faith considers the opportunities that God gives to us in trials as opportunities to celebrate. Because those real trials, as they come, no matter how difficult they are, they do a number of things for us. They, they produce godly character in us. Then they drive us to, into God's presence to seek his wisdom. These trials come in our life, and, 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 and they, they allow us to understand that, you know what, God's not punishing me right now. What God is doing is necessary surgery. What God is doing, I don't know if you've ever had to do this, Dad. One of your little ones has a splinter. And they're complaining about it. It's not just like you notice it. It's like, oh, this is killing me. Oh. And so you have to get the splinter out. But in order to get the splinter out, you've got to get them to stop moving, right? And so I, every child is different. Some of our children, it would have been very easy. Let me hold your hand. There, the splinter is out. There were some children we had to hog tie. There were children you had to lay on top of. And in trials, sometimes what God is doing is laying on top of us saying, son, this is for your good. I've got to get that out. So as we go through trials, we can actually look forward to the day of difficulty and trials being over, knowing that we are not in that day yet. Nowhere in Scripture, God never teaches us that there is no difficulty for you when you come to Jesus Christ. We live in such a broken world 
We live in a busted up world that needs redemption. Now, now as believers, we live knowing who's going to bring that redemption, but for now, trials remain. Difficulties mount. And as we experience new difficulties, and let's be honest, as we experience some of the same old failures over and over again, it's pretty easy to get frustrated. So in the text this morning, verse 16 really stands out. It's the only command in the paragraph that we read this morning. And the command of verse 16 is this. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. <clears throat> Why is he saying don't be deceived? Because you're being deceived. So don't be deceived. What are we being deceived into? And we're going to look at that through the full context of the morning. The idea that he is bringing up the teaching of the morning is don't be deceived into blaming somebody else for your own foolishness. Like, like our children do sometimes, right? Our kids like to blame shift. Well, he hit me. She pushed me. He looked at me funny. Or my personal favorite is when um, they actually blame objects that don't exist. There was a, a um, time when one of my kids was quite little. A baby was sleeping in the house. There was a pool table in the other room. And we had instructed said child, no rolling the pool balls. You know, wake up the baby. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, dad. Okay, yes, sir. So I'm sitting in the room next to it. My father-in-law is just like right there, right? So if I'm here, he's right there. And we're, we're talking, and all of a sudden from the other room, I hear that very obvious noise of a pool ball going clunk, and then rolling, roll, 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 and dropping into a pocket. Clunk. So I call the child into my presence, and they stand right here between myself and my father-in-law. I said, okay, hold on. Didn't daddy say no playing pool? I wasn't playing pool. <laughs> did, did, didn't I just hear a pool ball? Yes, but, but I wasn't playing pool. I, Okay, hold on. Did you roll the pool ball? No, sir. Well, what happened? I heard the ball hit the table, roll, and go into the pocket. You see, there was this spider. And as soon as the kid said spider, my very helpful father-in-law lost it. <laughs> Tears are rolling down his face. Like, how are you supposed to do good parenting in this moment? We are experts it's shifting blame, but come on, adults do it too, right? You got the email that I sent, there's that great story of the person who's following Google Maps to get to their destination. In Google Maps, it explains you need to now walk across this very busy highway instead of her trying to find an alternate route because it said walk across the busy highway. She walked into oncoming traffic and was hit by a car and then sued Google. Well, that's not the only time that happens. There's a, a story of the person who sued Mazda for $150,000 after she got in an accident because it failed to provide instructions regarding the safe and proper use of a seatbelt. <laughs> Stella, you guys know the Stella Awards? Have you ever heard about those? Back in the early 1990s, big deal. <clears throat> because this woman in 1992, Stella, sued McDonald's because she spilled her own coffee on herself and burned her lap, and she won $2.9 million from McDonald's. But it wasn't her fault. McDonald's fault. 
I almost paused, but I'm going to use this one. A fellow named Richard Overton sued the Anheuser-Busch Company because he said the Bud Light that he consumed did not carry him away to a paradise full of beautiful women, as the advertisement had suggested. Here's a good one. This fellow sued himself. He sued himself. He was incarcerated. He sued himself on the grounds that he violated his religious beliefs on the 1st of July in 1993, which resulted in his arrest. So he brought himself to court because he was a ward of the state, and he asked the state to uh, take responsibility and to pay his $5 million lawsuit. They laughed him at him. That's good. But instead of taking personal responsibility, got to pass the buck. That started a long time ago, didn't it? I, just think about that for a minute. God has created Adam and Eve in this beautiful, perfect garden. He has left them everything they could possibly have wanted. They're, they're in relationship. There's no futility in what they are doing. Work, just pop, contrary to popular belief, work was not a result of the fall. Work was fulfilling, enjoyable, productive. Adam and Eve had the great relationship, not only with each other, but with God. All these amazing things have been laid out for them, and as God leaves them alone in the garden, he says, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, will certainly die. We don't know how long it took. We, we, we're not sure. What we do know in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 1, it says this, and this stood out to me this morning, and I'll share that with you. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Just a little aside, what do you mean the serpent was the most cunning? Does that mean there were other animals that are a little sneaky too? My bet, cats. So the most cunning animal, the snake, says to the woman, did God really say, uh, that is the beginning of, of a lot of modern arguments against who God is and what his word teaches. Did God really say that? Just to try to create a little doubt in you, a little question in you. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve's response was, well, no, we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but the fruit of the tree of the garden, in the middle of the garden, God said, don't eat it, don't eat, for, eat it, don't touch it, or, 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 or we'll die. And Satan said, you won't die. It's just a fruit. God knew that when you eat that fruit, well, you'll be as smart as God, and he's just holding out on you. And the woman saw the tree was good for food, delightful to look at. It was also desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Fast forward a little while, and God is walking through the garden looking for his people. Where are you? Why can't I find you? What did you do? What has happened? 
Adam's response, ah, we were afraid because we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. And God's response, wait, hold on, hold on. You've been naked the whole time. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And do you know what Adam's response should have been? Yes, sir? Do you know what Adam's response was? Well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the fruit and I ate. That's what it was her fault. But you do notice, he doesn't just blame the woman here, does he? You're the one that gave her to me. Now, b- before we, we think Eve is just all prim and proper, her response was, uh, the, the, the serpent? The snake? He deceived me. We are varsity-level blame shifters, and it exists in our very nature. So what James is saying to his people here is when you are in the middle of these trials, as you are running from place to place trying to determine what it is that is happening, you've got to be really careful because trials rarely come in isolation. Trials are most often tied together with temptations. Two very different things, but they can exist in the similar times. So trials can often lead to temptation. Temptation is this, a desire or an urge for anything that, that can get in the way of your pursuit of God or, or, or can pull you away from God or can cause you to question the truth about who God is. And James lays out the progression of temptation right here. He says this in verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So it begins with a, a desire, a longing for something other than God. And then, then when, when that desire, that thought um, begins to deceive you. That's what it leads to sin. He says it draws you away or it entices you. Those are fishing and hunting terms. He says when it, when it draws you away, that's the lure. When you throw it in there and, you're, and the fish starts chasing it. He says, okay, there it is. There's that thought. It's, it's, and then, and then when, when it entices you, that's the bait that you lay out in order to bring the, the wild game in. He says, that's exactly what happens in your hearts. You begin thinking about this thing. This, this desire creeps in, even if it's for something, something good. And it deceives you into thinking that your greatest need is that your desire be fulfilled in the way you think it should be fulfilled. So as you're going through trials, your thought process can go, all right, I think I, think I can make my trial easier and less painful by doing and what it leads you to is doing something that you would never have thought to do otherwise. You may even think, you know, if I just give in here and, and, and violate not just my integrity, but the, the law of God in this one little area, then maybe I can get out of this trial altogether. Let me, let me walk through a couple of those for you. Can, can I do that for you? So, so trial, temptation, okay? The trial, the super busy day at work with a lot of stress, okay? The temptation... Man, the grass has got to be greener someplace else. And you spend the day on job sites trying to find another job instead of doing the work that's sitting over here. Trial, temptation, trial. You, you have financial trouble. 
You're, you're in, in severe financial distress. And, 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 and your thought, the temptation, isn't even a huge deal. It's, it's like, I don't even need to be anything huge. It's just, I, I just want to be able to go a day without thinking about money. So that can lead you to robbing a bank. That might be extreme, okay? Okay. <laughs> but it certainly can lead you to put too much money on a credit card. And in our day and age, man, I, the entertainment industry has grasped onto this and created a sports betting thing where I'll give you free money to get you out of your financial difficulties. See, temp trial, temptation. There's distress in my marriage relationship right now. I just want to be happy. So you start looking at Instagram. Why can't my husband be like him? How come she's not like that for me? And then what that leads to is you disappearing into this, this fantasy world, which has taken on so many different forms and shapes nowadays. And I, and, and I, and I, I do this without reservation and, and without apology. One of the greatest areas that trips up people today, husbands and wives, within our church even, is they get sucked into the entertainment of the dumbest, most hedonistic show that has ever existed, The Bachelor and Bachelorette. You giggle. That thing is from hell. I have seen marriages destroyed because of that show. Because of the, whoa, whoa, I see, well, stop it. That's not even real life. It's so fake. And what Satan's doing is, can't, you can't be happy over there, can you? Only this will make you happy. You want your kids to be safe. but it becomes all-consuming. Like, what do I have to do? I mean, in the culture, in the world that we live in today, and so you just keep them in. You're not going to ever let them leave the house. You're not going to ever let them be exposed to any other people outside of you. You live in fear of what might happen, so now you no longer trust that God cares for you and for your kids. The trial is not the temptation. He's saying the temptation comes from within you your own evil desire, your own sin nature. So, so when a trial comes, instead of allowing endurance to have its full effect, like we talked about last week, you, you're longing to be free of the trial, which vis-a-vis -vis means, I don't even know what that means, but I said it sounded cool, so I won't do that second service, but when you're longing to be independent of the trial, which what you're doing is saying, God, I just don't want to have to need you anymore. I want to do this on my own. My own ability, my own strength. Why would God answer that prayer? When those thoughts sneak in, we have got to run from the temptation. No matter how little it may seem, I promise you, it ain't little. The natural outcome of sin is death. Not some minor little mistake we make. This is rebellion against God that ends in death and in punishment. So take every small, every tiny, every empty thought, take it captive. Because those little decisions and choices you make every day are going to be what leads you down that road. Take responsibility for what's rising up from within you because, friend, you are not a victim. You are a sinner. That means kids. When another kid isn't kind to you, Instead of you responding by being mean, being unkind, back, throwing something, 
You don't get to say, well, they made me do it because no one can ever make you sin. And students, I, I've been face-to-face -face with this for a while now, and it just uh, this week was like, you guys, students are under such incredible pressure to fit in, to impress people. But students, when you make those decisions and it blows up in your face, you can't blame somebody else that came from inside of you. And your spouse is not the source of your temptation, and they're not the justification for your sins either. You and you alone are responsible for that. The temptation to sin is always on us, never on them. And if I stopped there, you would get the essence of a couple of verses, but you would miss the point of what James is trying to drive home. Because what he's saying is when we, we find ourselves failing, we find ourselves falling after temptation, we find ourselves in difficult situations, we tend to look around for the reason. That's, that's why our nature is, well, he did it. Well, it must be because of that. It must be because of that. And, and, and we're trying to find somebody to blame. And then we follow the pattern of our, of our parents, Adam and Eve. A person's own foolishness leads him astray. And then his heart rages against God. You can't be mad at God for your own stupidity. But we are regularly. How? But when we fail, it's like, God, you made me do this. You made me do this. You, you allowed the situation that led me to this. God, I know you could fix this. I, uh, why, why don't you stop it? Why don't you stop it now? Why didn't you stop me? Why did you let me do that, God? And it, it sounds crazy that we're accusing God, but that's exactly what James is saying here. Don't be deceived, verse 16, my brothers and sisters. Stop blaming God. Verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, because God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God does not tempt you to sin. Why? Because of his character. He hates sin. He hates evil. No part of him is drawn towards sin. He is repulsed by sin. He cannot be tempted by it. If he hates sin, why would he want to lead his people to sin? Well, why would God, who hates sin, doesn't want to lead his people to sin and is actually working at the cost of his own son's life to deliver people from sin, why would he want then to tempt people towards it? God is never going to lead a person to commit sin because that would go against his character, it would go against his nature, it would also be opposed to the purpose, his purpose of molding his creation into his holy image. So, so please, hear me. Argue with God. I know, you're like, whoa. Argue with God. I know who's going to win the argument, so feel free. Argue with God. Argue with God. Share your concerns. Ask him your questions. Express your frustrations. Express your hurt. Your pain, lament and lament well, but be careful and don't be deceived into accusing God of something he is unworthy of. In the middle of difficulty, we wrestle with trusting that God knows what's best for us. We wrestle when he lays on top of us to get that splinter out of our finger. And, and sometimes the temptation can be that. God, I, I don't trust you. That's mine. I'll just own that. 
can't trust them. But God, I, I see so many other ways this could go that would be so much better for you. For me. God, I, I don't... I wrestle with if God has my best interest in mind at times. Um, but what, what James has done this week for me is to remind me of what I actually deserve and how amazing it is that he didn't give it to me. So, so talking to a people that he loves, James, talking to these people who are scattered because of intense persecution and difficulty, who are um, continuing to scatter because somehow persecution continues to find them. And what James reminds them, and I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've read myself into this text. I can see the people hiding out, saying, there's got to be a better way, God. I mean, we're your people. This doesn't make any sense. Why, how could this possibly make sense? How is this your plan? I don't understand. I've read myself into that. I'm assuming somebody uh, from James' church prayed like that. But what James did is he reminds them and us that real faith doesn't look like just sitting back on a 73-degree day with a slight breeze and white puffy clouds with a cold beverage of your choice as you sit outside and your phone mysteriously got broken. That's my, that's my desire of, of faith. That looks awesome. Faith, real faith, walks through difficulty, limps through the pain, crawls through hardship, <coughs> and then deliberately chooses to view it, to consider it, a work of God in your favor. And then, blames God for the good gifts. We're, we're quick to blame them for the garbage. James says this, look at verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits uh, of his creatures. Are you, you in the middle of a trial? Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Your flesh is going to want to believe that God isn't good. Your, your flesh is going to cause you to wrestle with comparison with other people. Well, they've got that, and they've got that. Why do I have this? And then, then it's going to lead you to doubt, and he says, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. You need a reminder. And real faith is going to run back to that reminder over and over and over again. God's not trying to trip you up like the mean uncle in the family does when the toddler comes in the room. God's desire for you is is to succeed. God's desire is for you to follow him. And he is good, and his gifts to us are good. God is, God is holy. So everything that comes from him is good and perfect. And that, that even extends to our, our trials. Even in our trials, what, what God is doing, Peter tells us, is, is trying to shape us, mold us, refine us like pure gold. So the heat of the trial will, will refine us to the and the result is the praise and the glory and the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we forget that. And we need to be reminded that, that God is the one who gives us the good gifts. He, he says right here, this is the father of lights. Okay, that is such a trite little statement that we skip over every time. He's the father of lights. I tried this side to see if it works. Okay, he's the father of lights. 
means he spoke and huge flaming balls of gas showed up on the scene. He birthed stars. He spoke and they showed up. That's who God is. That's who God is. That's who God is. That's the God who's allowed the trial in your life. Do you think he knows what he's doing? He is the father of lights. He sustains them. He's not just the creator of them, but the sustainer of them. Think about that for a second. People have lost their minds. and They're like, oh, there's a satellite. It's off orbit. It's coming to Earth. Take one of those stars and cause it to get a little off kilter, and you're going to watch the scientific community just bug out completely. No, he sustains it. But he's not just the father of lights who gives good and perfect gifts. Look at verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. He gave you your salvation. He gave it to you through grace, not, not through anything you could do, not through anything you could earn. It said he made you alive again. Why? Why? Because he wanted to. Worst answer from a parent. Best answer from a God. Nobody forced him. It's not because of your beauty, because, come on, some of you are very attractive. But when it comes to God's standard, not a single one of us comes even close. No, it came out of his own will. He chose to love us. It's hard to accept in such an independent, moralistic culture that we live in, where it's like, if I just do good, then God will smile, and then he'll give me good things, and my bank account will get full, and I'll never be sick. That's never the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is, on your worst day, God said, I'll take that one. Mine. I'm going to bring her into my own family. I'm going to dump all the riches of my glory on him. That one, that's the one I want. How did he do that? Through the word of truth, through the word of the gospel. The gospel isn't something that's going to, 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 to bring us an easy life or a good life. The gospel is a declaration of good news, and that good news is this. You were separated from God in your sin and unable to have a relationship with him. And the more you tried, the further your separation was because you were depending on yourself to be that, that intercessor, that mediator that you could never be. But while you were actively rebelling against the God of the universe, the one who created the stars, sustains the stars, the one, the one who is the king of kings and the lords of lords, while you were in active rebellion and treason against him, God loved you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die where you should have died. Oh, and Christ did. And he was laid in the tomb. Three days later, he came back to life so you and I can have life. The gospel is not a trite tract. The gospel is the power of salvation. It's the ever-present reminder that in God's wrath, he remembered mercy. The gospel is what allows you and I to view trials not as punishment, but as the kind and, and, and gracious Father pulling that splinter out of our hands. And the, the last reminder that I want to hit is right here. This is another one we just skip right over, verse 16, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The shadow never moves with God. The sun makes its way across the sky, and you can watch it, Starts over here, this general direction, makes its way over there. 
My office sits on that corner. So in the morning, with the sun over here, I have no, no worries. There's a great shadow that is cast over my, my office. When that thing makes it to the other side and it is beaming through the window, the back, my back is just, well, that's gross. <laughs> I get all sweaty and nasty. It gets hot. <laughs> when the sun moves, the shadows move with it. But our God never moves. He never changes. He's, a theological word is immutable. His mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his love for you never changes. Why is that so important to remember? Particularly in a season of trials, we can often ask ourselves, does God really love me? This is so difficult, this is so hard, does he really love me? What's he doing? And then, and then, as James tells us, the temptation wells up within us and, and we bite it. We go down hard. We screw it up yet again. And because we're already like, does God even love me? Now we're at this part, we're like, that's it. It's over. It's done. Hey, hey. There is no shadow with God. His love, grace, mercy has never changed. His faithfulness will never change. He knew what he was buying when he was on the cross. He knew what he was getting with you. He's not going to change his mind. He, he knows all of your failings, all of your shortcomings. In fact, I'll make this very bold statement. He knew that if it was possible for you to lose your salvation, you would have by now. But because he never changes, that grace, that mercy, that love is yours forever. But I am so terrible. Seriously? I, if you think you disgust God, Look right here for a minute. All the disgust that God has ever had for you was poured out on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ, while he was on that cross. Do you think you, think you disgust God? Look at the cross. It was disgusting. Bloody agony, sorrow, being poured out, loss, grief, all of it right there. But all of the disgust that God could possibly have for you, believer, is gone. And he remains constantly for you because nothing was left hanging in the balance. When Jesus said it was finished, he meant Sometimes we need reminders, don't we? Sometimes we need reminders of how much God loves us. So when we leave today, I want to encourage you with something. This week, as you see a shadow, just be reminded. See that shadow? That's not a picture of God's love for me. See that shadow? That's not a picture of God's love for me. I want you to anchor yourself into something that never moves. Maybe a distant mountain. The faithfulness of God, the love, grace, and mercy of God for you will never change. Christian, be encouraged. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, and you want to understand what that means to be a Christian, at the end of our service, our prayer team will be available for you back in the corner. And I'm going to invite you to go back there and have a conversation. Ask your questions. Allow them to, to give you the answers out of God's word not out of their own experience, not out of a, a doctrinal book, but out of God's word, showing you that you have hope because you have a Savior who took all of God's wrath 
carried it with him into the grave, and then kicked down the door three days later. Father, thanks for your love. Thanks for your grace and strength. Thank you that even in moments of confusion and frustration that you are a God who can be trusted. Thank you for the reminder of your love. And I pray today that as we, as we walk, as we leave, as we drive, as we interact with people, we would simply be reminded of how good you are to us, how good you've been to us, and how good you will be to us. Lord, I ask that you would take, take our simple offerings, sometimes of just yielding to you, and God, would you make them acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Father, thank you for the truth of God's word. May we live in light of it today. Amen.